Welcome to Central Coast Voices, a program that addresses challenges faced regionally, the need for and consequences of change, and how today's choices impact tomorrow's community. This program is an extension and production of Action for Healthy Communities and is provided in collaboration with KCBX. Chris Kington Barker is your host for today's show, and she will be visiting with guests from Sage Care, a national advocacy and services organization that has been looking out for LGBT, uh, LGBTQ plus elders since 1978 to build welcoming communities and keep issues in the national conversation to ensure a fulfilling future for all LGBTQ plus people. You're invited to join Chris and her guests today in our conversation. You can call in your questions to be part of the discussion at 805-549-8855, or you can email them to voices at kcbx.org. Now let's join Chris and her guests. Over to you, Chris. Thank you, Brad. LGBTQ plus elder people are a diverse and widespread population residing in every area of the country. While the U.S. Census has never completely measured how many LGBTQ plus people live in America, reports estimate that there are currently around 3 million LGBTQ plus adults over the age of 50. That number is expected to grow to around 7 million by 2030. LGBTQ plus older people face unique challenges as they age. I want to welcome my guests who are joining me from Sage Care today. Sadia Abjani, she, her, Director of Learning and Equity. Nicholas Watson, he, him, Managing Director of Social Enterprise. Welcome to both of you today, and I'm glad you could join me here. Thanks for having us. In case someone is not familiar with Sage Care, it's not a new organization. Can we talk for a moment a little bit about what Sage Care is and how long it's been around and how it started? Yeah. So Sage Care that Sadi and I work with is the training and learning arm of Sage. Sage is, as you pointed out, not a new organization. We've been around since 1978. Um, and it was really founded in the activist spirit in a time really not that long after the Stonewall riots um, to really focus on the health and wellness and the rights of LGBTQ elders or LGBT elders, as we said at the time. Um, and we've done that throughout our history from a lot of different angles. So in New York City, SAGE runs what are called SAGE centers, which provide a community and a sense of support for LGBT elders in that area. And then nationally, we work uh, in every state on advocacy at the state level and the national level for policies that affect LGBTQ elders and the barriers that uh, make aging different for them. We also run the National Resource Center on LGBT Aging which publishes a lot of research and new information and provides resources for elders themselves and for people that are caregiving or have elders in their family. Um, and, and a bunch of other services directly aimed at supporting. We have Sage Table events where people gather, form community. Um, we run a hotline and a lot of other programs. I recommend you go to sageusa.org and check them out. Um, the program that Sadi and I work for is called Sage Care, and it actually grew out of the National Resource Center. We're a social enterprise, so we get hired by people in the long-term care industry to teach LGBT cultural competency and really the setting that LGBTQ people who are older today are entering care. That's great. 
Thank you for that, Nick. And Sadia, can you talk a little bit about if people are unaware of the history behind some of the challenges that the LGBTQ communities have with accessing health care, just some of the changes that they're leaning into here. Can you address some of that? Absolutely. So um, LGBTQ plus elders grew of age at a time of great prejudice and violence against the community. Um, until 1973, an LGBT individual could be diagnosed or declared a homosexual. And because of that diagnosis, they could lose practically everything. Their housing, their family, their ability to find and maintain work, and sometimes their personal freedom. Uh, there are stories of LGBT elders who were diagnosed and put in treatment against their will and lost everything, right? So there was also a lack of acceptance, right? And that lack of acceptance extends till today, which can be incredibly dangerous when we're talking about cohabitation, when we're talking about long-term care communities or residential facilities where individuals are, it's not just the LGBT adult that's living there, it's the individuals who grew of age at the same time and may hold the same assumptions and the same prejudices. So LGBT older adults, that, <clears throat> that, kind of discrimination or lack of acceptance was almost justified by the lack of acceptance of the medical industry, right? And the lack of acceptance of the legal industry. Being LGBT was criminalized up until 2008, right? Yeah. And in some ways is still criminalized today, mm -hmm. um, especially if you're a trans person. So we're talking about a group of individuals that has experienced a lack of acceptance, hatred, discrimination, and... I mean, we're told as individuals who grow up in the United States that the medical industry and the cops and legal industry are supposed to care for you. That's what we're told as children growing up, right? And what we have learned is that if you are not an affluent white man, that's not necessarily the case. So LGBT older adults also have experienced that throughout their lives, that if the medical industry is saying that there's something wrong with you, and if the legal industry or the legal community is saying there's something wrong with you, then I, as an individual, say, okay, there's something wrong with you, and you're not accepted, so I don't have to accept you. So there's almost a justification of that lack of acceptance or a justification of that discrimination because of the medical industry and because of the legal community. So what we're working with is a group of individuals who for a majority of their lives, including their formative years, have experienced a lack of acceptance. And so now when they're in extremely vulnerable positions, they're being told, go to the healthcare industry, go to the community or the group of people that throughout your life has told you that there's something wrong with you, go to them and be vulnerable with them and try to get help. Of course, that's not going to work. So we have LGBT older adults that delay accessing care, that avoid accessing care. And so issues that could be dealt with early on are not getting dealt with, are not getting treated. And that leads to, I mean, uh, healthcare disparities that leads to so many issues within the community. So in accessing healthcare, what we often talk about is sending messages or sending signs that you're different, that you will accept LGBT elders, that you're an inclusive space. 
Thank you for that. You know, and I think as we talk about people who are aging, when um, when we come from a generation that had to be more insular and protected, um, if we had a partner in our life who we felt safe with, as we get older, sometimes those partners die. And where we felt safe and insulated, now once again, we're vulnerable. We felt safe that we had developed our family or we felt safe that we had created something that felt like family and home. And now once again, we're vulnerable and where do we go? Um, And as you pointed out, when you go into community living, when that wasn't what you were a part of, and you go into community with other individuals who probably stayed within their communities that had similar thinking like them, and now are exposed to someone who has a different lifestyle than they had, it can be a collision. How do, how do you train people to look at something so much differently? And do people even think that they need to be trained? Oh, that's a fun question. Thank you for that question. <laughs> um, <clears throat> here's the thing. What we find on average is that most people have their heart in the right places, right? Mm-hmm. Their hearts mm-hmm. are in the right places. Most people that we train want to be good or accepting. They have gotten to the place where, hey, if it's not my religious kind of understanding or if it's a thing that I'm not okay with, I still recognize that this is a human being, right? So I would say I've done, I've trained, actually, we hit a milestone about a couple a, a couple of months ago. I trained over 10,000 people at my tenure at SAGE. Wow. And so- I've trained over 10,000 people. I can say that with confidence. And what I have learned is that 90, 95% of the individuals I've trained, their hearts are in the right places, right? It's only about five to 7% that are just completely anti-LGBT and troublemakers and just don't want to change. And that's okay. But the majority of individuals get to a place where they're accepting, but we have su- we have assumptions so deeply ingrained into who we are. LGBT individuals, as we were growing up, were not accepted. It wasn't a thing that was okay. Our parents didn't want us to be LGBT. There wasn't an understanding. There wasn't an acceptance. Our parents, I know for sure, my parents grew of age at a time during the HIV AIDS crisis. That's when they immigrated to the United States. And so the first image of LGBT individuals they saw Uh, whether that was, you know, acceptable or not acceptable, was the HIV AIDS crisis, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I know that not all individuals with HIV were LGBT, but that's the image that they have in their head. Right. So when I think about the folks that we're training, some of them are of the mindset of, well, I accept everybody. It's totally fine. Why do I need to take this training? But those assumptions are so deeply ingrained that that same person who's saying, I treat everybody with dignity and respect, why do I have to take the training, will then call an LGBT person a homosexual, not understanding the history and violence that's tied to that term. And what I tell all of my trainees is that you don't know what you don't know, 
you're not a horrible person. You're not a bad person. It's mm-hmm. totally okay. But you don't know unless someone tells you. So that's what I'm here for. I'm here to tell you. And these are the things that you haven't learned because society hasn't been set up for us to learn those things. They're yeah. not things that we get in school. Yeah. Nick, were you going to say I, something? I was just going to say another uh, similar piece of feedback we get is that people will often say, well, we don't have any LGBTQ people in our facility or our community. Right. And so we don't need this training. And that's one of my favorite pieces of feedback, because statistically, that is just very unlikely. And so what you actually have is a community where people are not comfortable coming out to you. Right. And therefore are not getting the best care. You're not treating the whole person. You're not meeting them where they are. And that, um, yeah, is is something that we deal with pretty regularly. I also wanted to point out, I just thought while Sadi was talking, that in addition to being able to treat people who are trans or other members of the community, there is, uh, especially in long-term care, an issue of who's in their family and who's in their community and who are the decision makers in their life, right? And more and more as people are making those choices, they might have, you know, a trans or a gay or lesbian grandchild that they want to be able to visit them or, or just a relative or friend. And so, I think creating a community that's welcoming to those people who may be straight themselves, it's, it's even more important just for those reasons to get yes. this kind of training in your community and competency. Is part of the training also um, learning about things that people don't know about, as you suggested, Sadi, of uh, not understanding, you know, who people are and how they are different and is it you know i have people tell me you know the alphabet of lgbtq you know what what does all of that mean it's beyond me and how do i know you know what what are the differences and is that part of the learning and is that helpful sure so Our trainings take an approach where language is at the forefront, right? Because the very first way in which you interact with an individual is through language, through your words. And if you say the wrong word or use the wrong term or write the wrong term, you set the individual uh, on the defensive immediately, right? right? So we start off with language, what to say, what not to say, what LGBT older adults use versus what's in the community now, the generational differences, the linguistic differences. We come from a very intersectional approach. Um, We talk about um, intersectional issues, but also we talk about diverse issues. So what language is accepted in other countries or, or things like that. And then we focus in on the historical context. So we put LGBT older adults into a historical context and talk about why have we gotten or how have we gotten to where we are today? Where are the healthcare disparities coming from? Where is the fear coming from? Where is the lack of acceptance coming from? Um, And then we talk about best practices. So an individual who takes our trainings will get the full picture. And the beautiful part of this organization, the reason I've been working in a nonprofit for seven years, which is kind of unheard of, people don't work at nonprofits for that long, (laughs) is because it's all based on real world knowledge. Sage has been around since 78. 
caring for people one-on-one. We have decades and decades worth of firsthand knowledge and that experience and that, um, that expertise is what's going into the work that we do. Our trainings do not leave the door without like a three prong process. They get reviewed by LGBT elders themselves. They get reviewed by activists and practitioners within the LGBTQ community and then get reviewed by academics. So what you see in our trainings is the words and experience and videos of LGBT elders themselves. I'm Chris Kington Barker with you for Central Coast Voices on KCBX, your Central Coast listener supported radio station. The voices with me today are Sadia Abjani, Director of Learning and Equity, and Nicholas Watson, Manager Direct Managing Director of Social Enterprise from SageCare, a national advocacy and services organization that's been looking out for the LGBTQ plus elders since 1978. We invite you to bring your comments about today's topic into our discussion. To do that, you can call 805 805- Five four nine eight eight five five, or you can email them to me at voices at kcbx.org. And I'd really like to, to talk about um, some of the some of the findings of the kinds of healthcare needs of the elder LGBTQ communities that are not getting met are they getting met in physicians offices when they do they tend to stay away from physician offices and you know i have a friend who really um goes out of their way in order to provide to the lgbtq community and they're backed up for appointments of people that come long distances to see them. So um, can you address some of that and what's missing for other practices that the community doesn't feel safe? I'll start on that and then Sonia can fill in some. Um, I think that it's it's heartening to hear that you, you know people who are practitioners geared toward that community. We certainly do too, and it's really helpful, but we see it, we hear a lot what you're saying, which is that there are more people who want like explicitly LGBT competent care in their lives than 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 practitioners are available. Yeah. Right. Then or then live near it, right? And one of the really important reasons why we have sage care is because we're really focused on the whole country. And while there might be resources in a handful of places across the country, there are LGBTQ people everywhere in the country. And so maybe in some rural areas, those are less accessible. And even in some areas where there's a high population, there aren't enough to handle the population that's there. Um, yeah, so we we do see a lot of that. Some of this, there are a lot of specific needs around trans care and understanding, and also when it comes to, I'll just give an example. When it comes to like end of life decision making, or as somebody's aging and has difficult decisions to make, the system itself in most places is set up around the idea of like a heterosexual couple, right? Can and you so explain the, what you mean by that? Yeah, so the in the intake questions will ask you know if there are difficult decisions to be made who is your husband or wife that we can consult with right Right. and they they come with a set of assumptions and they don't recognize that 
not only are a lot are LGBTQ people married at lower rates, partly because of the literal legal structures around marriage most of their lives, but also they have, you know, have had limited access to jobs, limited access to marriage, and they have had to form different family units. So a lot of them have families of choice and their decision-making around health, they would want to be made maybe with a partner or maybe, um, you know, with, with somebody else from that family group. So we, we do coach and counsel people on better ways to ask those questions at intake to not create a difference um, in the way people are getting access to care and getting to introduce the important people in their lives into the process. Yeah, yeah. Sadia, did you want to add anything to that? Sure. I would just say that, like, when marriage equality happened in 2015, there was an assumption that, okay, everyone's taken care of, everything is fine. Mm. And while an innumerable amount of benefits were extended to married LGBT couples, um, or specifically married same-sex couples, the fact of the matter is, is that it happened late. So we have a lot of LGBT elders that don't want to partake in marriage because they consider it a, a... a system that didn't accept them or, and more frequently folks find that there's a reduction in benefits if they marry. Mm -hmm. So because of that reduction and um, there's a a lack of financial security in the LGBT community, many LGBT older adults don't have access to healthcare, don't have access to um, uh, uh, Nick, come on, help me out here. The 401k. Retirement benefits. There we go. Retirement benefits and lots of things that come come from. This is all driven from a lack of access to employment. Yeah, exactly. So there was could not think of the word retirement for some reason, Um, (laughs) but there was a significant amount of employment discrimination, which led to a lack of access to retirement benefits, which has led to a lack of access to benefits in general. So we find that a significant portion. and studies have confirmed this, that a significant portion of LGBT older adults, especially LGBT older adults of color, do not have retirement benefits, don't have health care benefits. Um, and so the idea of losing even more while getting married, after getting married, um, is not an enticing idea. Yeah, yeah. It Are there differences um for the needs of the trans community than the LGB community? There absolutely are. So can you speak to that? I can speak to that from personal experience and I can speak to that from academic experience. So personally, what I have found in my trainings is that for the most part, folks are on board with LGB. They understand lesbian, gay, and to a, a little bit of a lesser extent, bisexual individuals. They understand sexual orientation deviates, right? They understand that there's a spectrum of sexual orientation and people can be anywhere on the spectrum. When it comes to gender identity, there's almost a wall that exists. Um, healthcare providers that we train, it's so difficult to get folks to understand that gender, gender is also on a spectrum. And so what we find is that we have a special training on 
trans aging. We have special sections in all of our trainings about the experiences of trans folks. What we find is that there is significantly more discrimination um, and hats off to the National Center on Transgender Equality for doing their research studies and including health care as a major component of those research studies, because that discrimination isn't lessening. Uh, close to a quarter of individuals who go to receive health care um, are denied health care outright. 19% are the victims of verbal or physical harassment while trying to access health care. Um, and on top of that, when we um, when we look at the experience of transgender individuals across the spectrum, what we find is that younger folks who have had access to uh, hormone replacement therapy, who have access to surgery, experience their transgender identity in a particular way. And older adults who may not be able to, may not have had access to hormone replacement therapy, or now increasingly may not be able to take it because of um, uh, comor- like different health indications and comorbidity. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so because they're not able to take it, they're seen by practitioners in a particular way, right? Mm-hmm. So those assumptions and the way that we view people affect how we treat our clients, because we're not asking the right questions. We're not asking how an individual identifies. We're not asking them what they choose their name to be. We're not asking them what pronouns they have. We're not asking the right questions. And so what we see becomes how we treat an individual. And that can be completely wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What Are there different parts of the country, since you do a lot of traveling, that you see are more resistant to providing health care than other parts? Or is this pretty universal? There are absolutely regional differences in in how that applies. I wouldn't want to pick on any states necessarily, but there certainly have been. um, I, I will just tell you an anecdote. There was a time about two weeks ago where in the same day I was on the phone with the State Department of Health that had just passed a law requiring people to learn, uh, people in practitioners of home health care to require, collect and use new data about how people's gender identity and sex assigned at birth for use in medical care and providing a lot of good guidance, making them take training to provide good guidance on how to do that respectfully and how to use and treat that information. And then the same day, I was on a call with a group of lawyers that was suing another state to basically keep it from making our training illegal. It would be clear that what we learned was that it didn't make our training illegal in any way, but that there are laws introduced and being discussed all the time that are meant to discourage people from trying to serve the LGBT community well. And um, those laws maybe are not legal in our First Amendment rights, but they are they are designed to, and hopefully they are not successfully creating a chilling effect on that. So even though people within those states may very well want that training, um, it is harder for them to get. Yeah. We're going to take a brief break, but I want to, when we come back from that break, I want to talk a little bit about when, when 
individuals are asking questions when they're doing an interview, when they're talking with someone like you you said, uh, an intake, what are some of the key things that they need to shift um, in some of the language and some of what they need to be aware of that uh, is important for people to look at their own processes who might be listening today at hospitals or long-term care facilities or clinics or even doctor's offices. And we'll be right back in a moment. I'm going to turn it back over to you, Brad. And thank you, Chris. We will return to uh, Central Coast Voices in just a moment. I am Brad Kyle with this from the KCBX Community Calendar for Dog Lovers. Come join the Cubid Paws Doggy Parade on the Avila Promenade. It's on uh, Saturday, February 4th from 11 until noon. This year's parade participants will receive goodie bags donated by Petco Arroyo Grande. And if you'd like to register your dog, they must be registered and checked in between 10 to 1045 promptly to receive a contest identification number for the costume contest. If you'd like more information, you can visit avalabeachcc.com. And just a quick reminder that the KCBX Community Calendar features arts, entertainment, and nonprofit events in San Luis Obispo, Santa Barbara, and Southern Monterey counties. You can submit your item or event to be shared through our calendar page. You'll find it on our website at kcbx.org. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Next time on Latino USA, Mexican singer-songwriter Natalia Lafourcade invites us all to seek refuge in music. I needed to go back to my own exploring of the music and to try something different, new, to reinvent me as an artist. That's next time on Latino USA. On the next Fresh Air, what January 6th committee investigators learned about the role of social media in the assault on the Capitol that never made it into the committee's final report. We'll speak with Washington Post reporter Drew Harwell, part of a team that reported on a draft memo which details how the tech platforms failed to curb extremist content. Join us. When you return something, it doesn't just go right back on the shelf, you know. It's not one size fits all for every product. Everything you touch has a different story. It's almost like a 31 flavors that returns. I'm Kai Rizdal, Retail Return Remix. Next time on Marketplace. That's ahead today on Marketplace Latino USA at 2 o'clock with Fresh Air at 3. Uh, and um, Marketplace at 4. Right now, let's return to Chris Kington-Barker and her guests on Central Coast Voices. And back to you, Chris. Okay, thank you. Welcome back to Central Coast Voices. Sadja Abjani, Director of Learning and Equity, and Nicholas Watson, Manager, Director, Managing Director of Social Enterprise, are here representing SageCare, a national advocacy and services organization that's been looking out for LGBTQ plus elders since 1978. You can email your questions to us or comments to voices at kcbx.org, or you can call in. 805-549-8855. If you um, want to share a story, a personal story that you have, we would love to hear it. Or if you have a question, 
We'd love to hear that too. And so I had, before we went on the break, I had talked about what kinds of questions, what kinds of interactions really are um, keys that it's, it's just not working as well as it should, folks. This, this really would be um, either triggering or it could be uh, harming in some way or it, it could be misunderstood um, and off-putting. Um, can you give some examples of that and what might be a better way to do it? And if organizations are really not training their friends frontline staff or even their healthcare staff, um, what can they do? So uh, a few things that, when I mean, we tend to focus on the positives, so things to do rather than things that you're doing um, that are sending the wrong message. But for instance, if you look at a website and every individual you see on that website is white, is um, a couple that are heterosexual seeming. Mm-hmm. Um, if the website has no indication of a non-discrimination policy, if it has no indication of a diversity and equity plan, if you look at material for a facility, a care facility, and don't see any of you or your values reflected, then odds are you're going to say, okay, that's not a place for me. And what we've heard from our LGBT elders is that they're looking for places that give some indication that they recognize and realize that LGBT older adults exist, that being LGBT is not easy, that they've gotten training, that they have recognized the issue is there, right? Our LGBT older adults are an incredibly resilient community. We talk a lot about discrimination. We talk a lot about the issues and problems that they've faced, but we don't talk enough about the ways in which they've cared for each other, the ways in which we have a community that has survived and subsisted in spite of everything that has happened, right? And so this community is looking, they're searching, they're activists, they're strong, they're vibrant, and they have a loud voice. And so in order to say, hey, a safe space for you, you have to send out that message because the default assumption is that nobody cares for me. Nobody's going to take care of me like I take care of myself. And nobody's going to care for me like my, my family or community of choice takes care of me. And so the message you send is, yes, I know you exist. Yes, I'm here to care for you. Yes, we've been trained. Yes, we've learned. And we're not like everybody before. So often in our trainings, we get asked, you know, why do we have to treat the community special? Why do we have to put a pride flag? Why do we have to do this? Why do we have, why, why do we have to say that we're an LGBT inclusive community? And what I have to say in those situations is that it's not about anything that you as an individual have done wrong. It is about a history of mistreatment, a history of a lack of acceptance, And so now you're reaching out to a community that is so, so, uh, so vibrant and so determined to care for one another. And you're saying, please let me in. Please let me be a part of that. Please let me help you. And I mean, I think that's how we have to look at it, that you're not saying, oh, so much bad has happened to you. I'm here to take care of you. It's 
you have done so much. Let me carry some of that for you. We also see, I, I think that's such a good way to say it. Sadi and I recently toured a, a community in New York City that we know has really good policies and that we know has proactively affirmed their the ability, they recognize that they have work to do as we all do, but they're really working toward a good thing. And we were there touring them for another project. And we noticed that there were in the public spaces, there weren't any pride flags, there weren't any statements of intent, there wasn't even a statement about diversity or inclusion. And it is striking, given the history that we know they already know of how people have been treated by the medical establishment, how am I as an individual supposed to walk into that space and know that you're aware of that and will try to overcome that for me? Um, it also helps all, all of those indications and the doing of training and the affirmative use of the language has an impact on the staff that works there and the extended families of the people that work there and the life. I was recently on just a call with a, a national home care agency that we work with and somebody on that call who ran an agency in Massachusetts, ran a part of this agency in Massachusetts, said that since they had started doing sage care training, she had had the comfort to come out at work. And she had worked there for 23 years. Wow. Had been married most of that time to her partner. And, um, you know, all that community would have said, even at the beginning of their training with us, like, we're an accepting community. We're not. But clearly... People she didn't feel it. She was not. And she was an employee. She worked there every day. She yeah. How did you respond to people that say, I treat everybody the same? Oh, that's my favorite. <laughs> I love getting that one. I hear it so often. Pretty much every training, every other training, I get that. And my response is, if you're treating everybody the same, you're not doing your job. Right? The goal is not to treat everybody the same. You wouldn't give the same medicine to someone who has diabetes and someone who has heart disease. You wouldn't treat someone with the same care or use the same um, psychological approach for someone who has experienced trauma in childhood and someone who is, you know, experiencing a psychological disorder of some kind, right? Having the same approach, treating everybody the same doesn't do the job. The goal is to treat everyone with equity, right? The goal is not to say, I have these limited resources, so I'm going to distribute those resources in the same way for everybody. The goal is to understand where individuals come from and distribute those resources in a way that gets everybody to the same goal. And that's person-centered, inclusive care, right? So when someone tells me, I treat everybody the same, it's like, no, no, you don't. And you shouldn't. You should understand where an individual is coming from, understand the issues that affect them, understand the psychological, historical, socioeconomic issues that impact them, and then treat them with a specific plan geared towards all of those things, right? Delivering that same person-centered care, which is different for every individual, when, when we talk in healthcare about trauma-informed care, can you define what that means and why that's important? Sure. So I am not a uh, healthcare professional. I am not a, um, an individual with a social work degree. I only understand it 
in the research that I have done. So as right. not an expert, I will say that trauma-informed care is understanding the specific needs and specific experiences of an individual. Um, it's not just about the actual trauma that they have experienced, right? person to person. It's about historical and generational trauma as well. It's about the impact of history and society and social experiences on an individual, as well as the um, trauma that they have experienced throughout their lives. And an awareness of how that's affecting current interactions that you're having with them in treatment. Yeah, yeah. And um, for... For individuals who come into care facilities or seek health care, how, how do you see that they also are noticing how their, their chosen family is being treated in the process? And how does that make a difference? If someone treats them okay, but then their chosen partner their chosen person who they want to make their decisions about end of life care is treated as insignificant. How, what's the impact of that? I mean, the impact is that it discourages you from seeking care, hopefully just at that agency and not overall, but more often than not people's experience of that or knowing that they might experience that because they have in the past and they know that it happens leads them to seek care probably later than would be ideal. And um, it's very disorienting. I don't know if you've noticed, but we're all getting older, and I find it a little disorienting myself. <laughs> oh, I notice it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it is it is important to have other people to rely on. It's important when you're going through certain kinds of uh, just age-related process or disease-related process in your life to have those people uh, to rely on who you relied on, who you rely on in your personal life as part of your family or chosen family structure. When you're doing training um, and someone comes from a place of, you know, as part of my religion, as part of my belief process, my morals, um, this is not okay with me. How do you incorporate that into you can still do the right things and you can still come from a better place, even with that and be true to yourself? How do you handle that? So uh, that's going to be a question that I take because religion and faith is so near and dear to my heart. I am a devout and practicing Ismaili Muslim I did my undergrad degree in Islamic studies. I, most of the, or a good chunk of the communities we work with are faith, faith-based communities. Mm -hmm. We do a lot of work in faith communities. And there are a couple of things in that question that I want to touch on. One, we can't make the assumption that because someone is a person of faith or a community, a care community is a community of faith, that they are not going to be accepting. Honestly, that, that is not an assumption we can make. Um, the other piece of this is that if you are an individual of faith and you say, well, being LGBT, that whole thing, it's just, it's not okay with me. I don't agree with it. That's fine, right? But what we're talking about is person-centered care. 
What we're talking about is in order to deliver that trauma-informed, that person-centered care that we're talking about, um, we have to learn and understand what that historical trauma is. We have to learn and understand what an individual has gone through and how we can care for them in the best care, best way possible. We have to understand those healthcare disparities. So it's not about faith. Um, it is about really understanding the individual. And in order to say that we treat everybody with dignity and respect, we have to learn what everyone is going through. And this is a small piece of that, right, of the vast tapestry of diverse individuals that we work with. Understanding LGBT trauma, understand, understanding that history is a small piece of caring for this vibrant, full individual. Um, but I think sometimes in our community, as an LGBT person and as a person of faith, I think sometimes in our community, there's an assumption that faith and being LGBT is like opposite sides of the coin that you can't right. be both. And that's just simply not the case. Yeah. Thank you for that. I'm Chris King to Barker with you for Central Coast Voices on KCBX, Central Coast Public Radio, your listener supported station. If you just joined us for today's show and want to listen to the entire broadcast, you still can. It's available on our website at www.kcbx.org under the demand tab, or it will be by the end of the day. You can click on Central Coast Voices and you'll find this show and many of the other past shows to check from. I'm visiting with Sadia Abjani, Director of Learning and Equity, and Nicholas Watson, Managing Director of Social Enterprise. They're representing Sage Care, a national advocacy and services organization for the LGBTQ elders since 1978. And um, talk a little bit about how you're available to organizations or to businesses for this kind of training and what does the training involve? Yeah. Um, we work, so we work fully nationally and we have um, trained organizations in all 50 States and we work with organizations to create a long-term plan for them to improve their cultural competency around LGBTQ people and issues. Um, the way that we usually do that, or I'll just say what a typical engagement kind of works like for us, is that we're contacted by, say, a long-term care facility on the Central Coast, and they um, say, okay, we, we've gotten some feedback, or we've just been somebody, our board has been thinking about our need for this, or we have some knowledge that of a deficiency we have in our training. And we'd like to work with you on that. And most often uh, what we advocate for is people make a three-year commitment to do the training. And we begin that um, sometimes with a four-hour in-person leadership seminar with the kind of the identified leadership and management layer of the organization. Sometimes they choose, especially since March of 2020, they choose to do that online. People are more comfortable working that way. Uh, when it's online, they take a 75-minute course that they do individually on the computer where they work through a lot of videos and text and first-person accounts where they learn a lot of terminology they learn a lot of the history that Saudi was talking about earlier and how it's affected care 
And then uh, once the whole leadership team has been through that, they meet with uh, Sadi or one of our other expert trainers, and they have a moderated discussion that has some content to it, but really is meant to lead them to revelations or just plans and ideas about how they're going to make this change in their community. And then only after they've been through that leadership part, we uh, ask every member of the staff to take um, a, about an a longish online training kind of like that and then we do periodic check-ins with that and then we the reason we like it to be three years is then they can add that to their onboarding training the same kind of definition of lgbt terms the history of access to care the specific care needs that somebody from all these different communities might have the way to use and collect sexual orientation and gender identity data a lot of specific learning around that and then everybody at the organization takes that. They make it part of their core training, you know, like your harassment training and your infection right. control training and all those things. Um, and we think that's where you get, if you sort of start with the leadership and then broaden it out to everybody, that's where you get real change. When, when you talk about real change, do you have data about the impact that the training has had on organizations that have incorporated it? Has it shifted some of the culture? Does it have an impact in the outcome for um, for patient care? And I would assume um, all care, not just for LGBTQ+. Yeah, we do see, we, we have um, academic reviews that are attached to all of our trainings and what we see over time i don't have the numbers in front of me unfortunately is that people report uh when we survey the staff that has taken it that they report um a lot of anecdotal positive feedback from the communities and then a, a really large increase usually a 30 to 40 percent increase in how comfortable they feel addressing people from a broad community, right? And working with their, their comfort around pronouns, their comfort around terms and definitions, and their comfort around talking to people about their partners and their families. Is there ever any feedback about whether or not the, uh, the community feels more willing to um, go to them for services? So the problem here is that we don't have an accurate count of LGBT elders. Right. Mm. A majority of facilities in the United States don't ask inclusive demographic questions. They mm. don't ask questions about whether an individual is LGBT or uh, about gender identity. And so when we go to say, OK, as you as a an LGBTQ plus individual, are you experiencing better care? Well, we yeah. can't identify people as LGBTQ in the first place because no one's asking those questions, right? Unless they're state mandated to do so, or unless they're a trained agency that has gone to that place and done that. Um, what we do find is the rate of individuals accessing our website for trained agencies is astronomical. What really? we find is that we have a lot of unique traffic on our website when it comes to the specific page where folks can search for trained agencies or credentialed agencies. Mm -hmm. That's the only kind of data point we have because people are not asking the questions that we need. Yeah. Yeah. The only so, data point from patient, the patient. patient right. Side. Yeah. Right. So that's part of the training is how to change your forms, your mm -hmm. intake and make that inclusive data. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, is, can I just, Sadia yes, just mentioned the page where people can search for providers. And I thought I, while we're on the radio, I wanted to yeah. underscore that. If people want to search and it works, it's most concentrated in the United States, but it works everywhere, is you can search in your real local area, in your town, in your state for uh, any kind of caregiver that you're looking for that has what's called our Sage Care credential. And we credential agencies, uh, once they've been through the training and they've made certain commitments to be. And inclusive. that can be therapists. It could be hospitals. It could be long-term care. It could, it could be, be home health agencies. Home health agencies. For now. Yeah. Hospice care. Hospice. That's great. And say again what your website is. It's sageusa.care, C-A-R-E. Okay. And I want to circle back with you. Are there other things that we haven't covered that you want to make sure that we address today? Um, One question, for smaller businesses or organizations, care providers, is the training affordable or does it need to be a big corporation in order to, um, in order to afford it? Yeah, it scales really well. We work with very small agencies. Uh, We just today, uh, the business development director and I set up a new startup agency in Los Angeles that has only two employees at the moment. And they're starting the training this week. Um, but we also work with tens of thousands at some organizations. Um, and that's something that the, you know, switch to online learning has helped us to be even more flexible about. Yeah. Because um, you don't have to pay for Sadia to get on a plane as much as we like it when she does that. <laughs> Please pay for me to get on a plane. I'm going to say that the in-person management training, it's four hours, but I crack jokes. They're not great jokes. But it's I real fun. I've been through uh-huh. it myself. <laughs> Sadi, is there anything that you'd like to bring up that um, we haven't really talked about? Um, I think that my main goal was to get across not just that we have a community of individuals that is experiencing a significant amount of discrimination, but that also that there is a significant amount of resilience and that when we see this community, we think mostly of Oh, oh, I'm sorry you and not enough of it is beautiful how you have taken care of one another. And God, I wish I could be a part of that. Um, The other thing that I wanted to talk about was that we um, were in the middle of a grant cycle with uh, Archstone, which Nick can talk a little bit more about, but we have created a new training um, for home health aides. Uh, and in-home care providers so we're very excited about that it's going to be available in multiple languages and we're just we're just putting the bow on that one oh that's great arts the archstone foundation which is a california focused foundation is also providing subsidizing for some smaller agencies and agencies that work with certain populations to make sure that they get this training as well is that for anywhere in California or it's is statewide in California? Statewide. Yeah. So, but it's okay. the same training we do everywhere, although it's it's got some new bells and whistles now, thanks to their generosity. Um, but so, it's really to work with especially, 
you know, home rural health. areas and people that are unserved in home health in California. Yeah. So if there was a, a small home health agency or smaller agencies that have home health aides and they wanted to get in touch to find out about, more about that, where would they look? They would go to our same website, sageusa.care. There's a form you can fill out and uh, either I or our business development manager, more likely Karen Cushing, and she understands a lot about what you need and can kind of get matched the right care. And if there are subsidies available, she will find them. Okay. Okay, great. And if, um, if someone wanted to, could they go to the website too, in order to um, see about connecting with you about a training? That's yeah, also that's the way the to do that? Yeah, the same advice for everybody. Yeah, as you can, okay. you can it's also where you would go to search for a provider that's been through our training. All right. Thank you so much for joining me today. I want to thank my guests from Sage Care, Sajab Johnny, Director of Learning and Equity, Nick Watson, Managing Director of Social Enterprise. I appreciate everything that you brought, and it was delightful to have you here. Next week, please join Mario Espinoza when his guests are from the Cancer Support Community, California Central Coast, in a discussion including cancer prevention, recommended cancer screenings, and vaccinating against certain viruses. Central Coast Voices has been sponsored by Action for Healthy Communities and the San Luis Obispo Community Foundation in collaboration with KCBX. I'm Chris Kington-Barker. Thank you for joining us today.